Before we get started with our fourth episode, we want to remind our listeners of the Oregon Association of Nurse Anesthetists annual conference on November 15th and 16th. Speakers include our previous guests from episode three, Tom Barabow, and an ultrasound workshop with Scott Rigdon and Mike McKinnon. Come get weird with us in Portland. Go to oregon-crna.org for more information, and the link will be in our episode description. Hello, fellow CRNAs, and welcome to Rapid Sequence Discussion, a 10- to 15-minute podcast version of Grand Rounds. This is Kia Gilbert, Katie Pisciatello, and Linda Callery. Each month, we will present a topic relevant to rural CRNAs. Imagine working at a critical access hospital where you can count on one hand the number of times you had to give an opioid in the last year. And as a result, you've had increased patient satisfaction, decreased rates of nausea, and decreased length of stay. We are all aware of the opioid crisis in the United States. Studies suggest that even one prescription of opioids can lead to addiction. We are in a unique position to reduce postoperative pain starting in the preoperative phase. This is our second episode on opioid-free anesthesia. Today, our guest speaker is John Wilton. John is the chief CRNA at a critical access hospital in Northern California. John has been a CRNA for 10 years and has recently earned his DNAP. Prior to his current location at Mount Shasta, he started his career at a 500-bed hospital in Tennessee. As chief CRNA, John spearheaded a comprehensive regional anesthesia program, including ultrasound-guided peripheral nerve blocks, continuous catheters, and chronic pain. The practice at John's facility is essentially opioid-free, and giving narcotics are the exception, not the rule. Here are some impressive stats. In a period of five years, the average fentanyl dose given was reduced from 100 micrograms per case to 10 micrograms per case. Furthermore, dilaudid use is a rare exception. In 2018, 37% of total knee and total hip patients were opioid-free at discharge. Huh, makes me wonder what kind of cases they do. Right, and it turns out this critical access hospital does ortho, trauma, OB, general surgery, and spines. John, thanks for joining us. Those are very impressive stats. What prompted your department's transition into opioid-free anesthesia? That actually began back in uh, my training. We had, we had a couple of people come in and lecture about preemptive analgesia, which actually turned out to be a lot of the research turned out to be fraud. Uh, mm-hmm. But we also had a lot of alternative treatment modalities at Vanderbilt University, lidocaine infusions. A lot of research was going into Presidex, dexmedetonidine at that time. And then when I came here, I was actually in a position to start making changes. So that's what we did, and it was a gradual transition. Okay, so how long did um, how long do you think the process took from from when you started to where you are now? So I started here in 2013, and we started almost immediately. Okay. We started with preemptive medications, including Tylenol, Gabapentin, and uh, Celebrex. Uh, we updated our blocks, and then at that point, we just started adding all the newest blocks as soon as we possibly could. For example, in 2014. We switched from femoral nerve blocks to adductor canal blocks mm-hmm. with uh, with IPAC. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, was it hard to get the like other stakeholders on board, like the surgeons or administration? Uh, surgeons, uh, yes. They some of them were a little bit challenging, and it took years to get everybody on board. We're at one hundred percent acceptance now. Uh, they don't even blink if we come up with something new. 
But back then, yes, there was definitely resistance from a few of the surgeons. Uh, we have an amazing pharmacy director, and mm. she supports everything we're doing. And uh, so does our hospital administration. So you just kind of started implementing these changes. They liked the results, and then the surgeons just kind of backed you up? That is correct. Because you, and I'm sure that you need them on your side to make change. Yes. I tell them almost every day that they are just as much a part of the process because they could say no at any time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so are they? Are the surgeons then prescribing um, opioids for discharge? So they do, but they've actually greatly reduced the uh, amount of opioids that they prescribe. And uh, all of our order sets now, they focus on Tylenol and the alternatives, like, for example, Celebrex or Toradol. And there are zero combination meds prescribed anymore. Opioids are only as a breakthrough. Did you have to do any education or training with your perioperative nursing staff? So we have an amazing patchy nurse. Shout out to Olga Tarantino. <laughs> uh, but uh, she, if, if she has to give more than a dose or two of opioids, she's hunting us down. Okay. Oh. <laughs> see if we want to do a different block or try something else. Uh, As far as the nursing staff, we started catheters in 2016, Mm -hmm. and uh, there was some training that had to occur, still occurring three years later with the nursing staff. Because of your extensive block program, do you only hire CRNAs with block experience? So no, we do not. Most people walking in would not be able to do the majority of this. What is a requirement is just getting them on board for the willingness to do blocks and to change their practice. And it's not a punitive process, but one of the things that we do is we run a monthly report of the opioid use by provider, and that's sent out to everybody, and it's primarily a peer pressure. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so nobody likes to be an outlier. Majority of the time, uh, CRNAs are not giving a single opioid, and if they do, it's one or two. Um, so back to when you said you do place catheters on these patients, uh, what's the process with that? How do you guys manage those? Uh, so a lot of times if it's a trauma, like, for example, if it's a hip fracture, we'll go to the ER and place the catheter. Usually it'll be a pain block catheter. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they'll have that for pain control until the actual surgery. Nice. And then we do post-op rounding every day after the surgery while they're in-house. And then if they go home, there's actually a 24-hour-a-day nurse-staffed hotline with the company of the catheters that we place. Oh. So the patient can call in at any time with any questions. Oh, that's, that's nice. interesting. Yeah. Personally, how did you get trained in these blocks? Whether it's uh, Well, it started in school. Uh, actually, Middle Tennessee School of Anesthesia is extremely uh, strong in regional anesthesia. Shout out to uh, Lynn Sherrill, our professor. <laughs> uh, we also did a, I did, personally did a rotation at Grant Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. And Dr. Norman Smike and his team were amazing. I had something like 100 blocks when I grad left there. Nice. Uh, but back then, ultrasound was extremely rare. I think I saw one ultrasound guy at block the entire time. Wow. And, uh, but my last five, 500-bed jo- uh, job, nobody did ultrasound either, and regional anesthesia was pretty rare there as well. So mm-hmm. when I came here, I started doing the stimulator-based blocks and then transitioned to ultrasound guided relatively quickly. Mm-hmm. 
What would you recommend for those of us who want to learn a new block? So once you learn the basic blocks, uh, anywhere between five and ten blocks, it becomes really easy to adopt and add a new block. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's not a big deal. The biggest thing is just getting confident with ultrasound and getting some basic blocks done in the first place. Mm-hmm. Are there any cons to having an opioid-free anesthesia practice? Uh, more work. That's okay. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, and having said that, though, it's not as much as people would think. Uh, a lot of times, I mean, a single-shot injection, you could do bilateral. For example, you can do bilateral QLs in under three minutes, so it takes longer mm-hmm. to drop the meds than it does to actually do the blocks. Wow. Uh, yeah. And if you're using the catheter system that we use, you can do a single shot catheter usually in under 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So uh, the phone calls, you know, the occasional leaking catheter or mm-hmm. being called into the ER to do regional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are the biggest, biggest negatives. Can you walk us through a bread and butter case like a lab coli? They're all, they're all pretty similar. Uh, mm-hmm. once, oh, once they arrive in the pre-op, they'll be getting Tylenol, usually 650 to to a gram PO, they'll get Celebrex 100 to 200 depending on their age, and they'll get gabapentin usually about 600 milligrams. Mm-hmm. If uh, we block pretty much absolutely everything except for scopes, and we probably would do that. <laughs> uh, usually use dexmedetomidine as sedation while we're doing the block. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You mentioned lap coli, uh, so we would most likely be doing quadratus form. Uh, single shot block. Oh, so is that the QL one, two, or three? Uh, we usually do a variation of the two, okay. and you'll see most resources uh, mention twenty milliliters for each side, uh, which we do not agree with. So we uh-huh. take the max dose of local, uh-huh. and we dilute it down to forty milliliters each side, what? and then uh, inject it. It's more of a volume block. Yeah. Exactly, hmm. and then. Uh, uh, no opioids, obviously. Uh, we go to the OR and they'll have an induction with propofol and a paralytic of choice, usually rock and running. Uh, we do another unusual thing here. We very rarely use volatile agents, so almost everybody gets a total IV anesthetic. Oh. Oh, uh, nice. So we use yeah. propofol, uh, usually a small bolus of ketamine up front. Mm-hmm. And then, depending on how long it's been, they'll usually get 15 milligrams of Toradol towards the end of the case, and then they'll go to the recovery room. And quite frequently, they, they might take a small dose of an opioid, mm-hmm. but if it takes more than one or two doses, the PACU nurse is calling us to see if there's something we want to add. Hmm. Are you um, ever running, like, Esmolol during the case? We do, depending on the case, absolutely. Like, some of the big spine cases, uh, uh we will use Esmol up front, and then if their hemodynamics will allow, we'll use Esmol. Uh-huh. And if, if it's a case that regional anesthesia is uh, not able to be used, we'll use lidocaine infusions, max sulfate infusions, mm. uh, that sort of thing. Yeah. So why the transition to Tiva? So Tiva came into it primarily because of uh, we were doing infusions anyway a lot of the time. And if you look at the antimatic properties... It's quite significant to the point where, with the combination of TIVA and regional anesthesia, our, any new PACU nurse is not allowed to be trained here because we have so few, few side effects. 
They have to go be trained over an hour away at our nearest sister facility. Uh, wow. Oh, bravo. That's great. <laughs> and did you notice a delay in your wake-up times at all? Not if you time it correctly. And <laughs> almost everybody, unless there's a contraindication, gets a deep extubation. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any cases that you do blocks for that are not traditionally blocked? Yes, many. Uh, 2017, we discovered that quadrasilumborn blocks actually work for spine surgery, uh, lumbar in particular. So since then, we've done QLs for every lumbar fusion and lumbar case that we do. Wow. Um, We actually just got IRB approval to do a Mm. retrospective study on this. Oh, great. Uh, Our end is almost 30 right now in each arm. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> and at that time, we also made the conscious decision to start exploring the other spine surgeries that we do, including thoracic and cervical. Uh, so we interviewed the players, including the surgical PA, the surgeons, our PACU nurse, and we ascertained that with ACDFs, the primary pain generation was in the posterior neck. So we do a lot of chronic pain here as well, and we started doing third occipital, greater occipital nerve blocks for all ACDS with a cervical plexus on the incision side. And since then, close to, I'd say around 50% of our ACDS go home opioid-free. Oh, my gosh. And then we do a lot of thoracic spinal cord stimulators and laminectomies, that kind of thing. So they all get erector spinal catheters. And then usually a QL for the generator side. Wow, that's really impressive. Uh, Do you have any advice for our listeners who are looking to make changes to their facilities practice? I would bribe your pharmacy director. (laughs) And then I would start pointing out the reasons to go opioid for your, or at least uh, reduction. If you're JCO accredited, they mandate that Mm -hmm. you have a plan. Mm. Uh, I would start emphasizing the benefits, including the decreased post-operative nausea, vomiting, the benefits to society, decreased addiction, and then actual, the actual outcomes, uh, 40% of our totals are going home without ever taking an opioid. Wow. Incredible. That's amazing. Yeah. Thanks, John, for joining us for our fourth podcast. Make sure you join his Facebook group called Ultrasound Guided Regional Anesthesia, MSK and POCUS for some great resources on how to do some of the blocks mentioned in this podcast and more. We hope to see you in a few weeks at our Oregon Association of Nurse Anesthetists Conference in Portland. That concludes our fourth episode of Rapid Sequence Discussion. Thanks to those of you who listened and are supporting our podcast. We are three full-time CRNAs doing all of our own recording and editing, and this podcast is for our capstone project. Follow us on Instagram at Rapid Sequence Discussion and stay tuned for future episodes. Spoiler alert, the Jan Menina will be on our next episode.